been one of those weeks where no matter what was written down, nothing sounded right. <laughs> I came across a quote this week from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, well-known English preacher from the 1800s, and he once said to his congregation something along the lines of, the day you quit praying for your pastor is the day I should quit preaching. <laughs> and I, uh, I agree with that sentiment. I really would value your prayers throughout the week, as I know many of you do. So there I was yesterday morning, and I think the reason I had such a block that I've been wrestling with the Lord so much about it is that personally I really struggle with believing it myself. How can I preach something that I can't fully grasp, understand, enjoy, savor, believe in, and find hope in myself? As I've told you already, the book of Ruth is so crystal clear and apparent, a book about real life. Because though the culture and the circumstances are different, the wrestlings and the interactions are all so familiar. As you turn to Ruth 1, we, we catch up with Naomi, an Israelite, repenting and returning to where Israelites belong, <laughs> namely Israel. Naomi's husband Elimelech, in a time of famine, had taken his family away from God's kingdom and God's people to try his time in pagan Moab, where he should never be. So much that the law forbade Israelites and Moabites fellowshipping together forever. Elimelech, in trying to provide for his family, fails miserably and tragically as he and his two sons, in other words, all the providers, die. This left Naomi in Moab. She hears that God is visiting his people in Israel once again. So she's returning, and one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, has pledged basically to become an Israelite. She's thrown off all that it means to be a Moabite. She's left Moabite God, family, country, and everything she's known and professes that all things Israelites, including Naomi and her family, are now hers. Please stand with me one last time as we pick up the story in Ruth 1, beginning with verse 19. Talking about Naomi and Ruth. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. <coughs> now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. She said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. 
She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink with what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband was, has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Let's pray. Father, I have uh, experienced this truth quite vividly, that you give abundantly, that you give more than we expect, that your grace is boundless. Father, you've given us bread to eat today in the scriptures. I pray that your voice proclaims your truth. And I pray that your spirit is moving in your people. I pray that you give us receptive hearts to not only hear and thank you for, but then to do. Father, have your way with us, within us, and through us. May our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ get the glory. Be exalted, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May be seated. I remember back almost a year ago, January or February, when I was emailing Rob, Dean, and James with my plans for this book of Ruth, and so I was, you know, asking if they would contribute to a study guide, and I know and told them then that the title of this series that kept on coming to me was Redemption and Love. And I told them specifically that I think that this title would be good because maybe you disagree or maybe you know exactly what I'm talking about, but I think sometimes I'm prone to overlook such sweet truths of the gospel. I freely confess that I really lean into judgment and, and hard righteousness and unapologetic bold truth that if I'm not careful, I don't express God's redemption, his love, his mercy, and his grace and forgiveness, which are all important, well-needed truths that we cannot do without. And so as I came to this text, I finally realized by yesterday morning that I'm running into what I said almost a year ago to Rob, Dean, and James, that I've run into a mental block because I'm so saturated in gospel truth and righteousness that I'm beginning to have a hard time accepting myself personally and expressing the redemption and love part. I'm like Naomi in that sense. Because we come upon Naomi saying this in Ruth 1, beginning with verse 19. So the two of them, Ruth and Naomi, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty 
has brought calamity upon me. We must recall the time that the author has stated that all this is taking place, namely in the time of the Judges. So it tells us Ruth 1.1. The book of the Judges, a page or two back in your Bible, ends summarizing that entire era of the Judges as a time where Israel did what was right in its own eyes and no one really served God. This period was actually about 350 years, the Judges. So it's not a small time in the history of Israel. It's longer than our nations existed. And so I think that I may have hinted last week that Naomi could return to Israel with the scarlet letter. That people uh, would turn their noses down at her. And I'm sorry, that's a wrong estimation on my part because it's the time of the judges. I wouldn't be surprised if Elimelech is just one of many who often moved during the, way of, uh, the time of the famine. So we don't know. But as Bethlehem receives Naomi, the town is stirred, and the women say, is this Naomi? Naomi means pleasant. And we saw last week that the first words out of her mouth were pleasant words of well wishes. She wanted her daughters-in-law to fare well, to find husbands, and find really redemption from their tragedies that they are in. And in that, Naomi never expressed self-pity. She never mentioned, I'm in the same boat as you, and I hope I find some redemption myself. So we see that Naomi is more often than not rather selfless. Because besides this episode here, she's going to return to really just to root on Ruth the rest of the book. She really wants Ruth to be settled. And so if I had to take a guess, I think the women of Bethlehem, are saying, is this Naomi, and that their stirring is a stirring of joy and celebration, because I believe that this is the neighborhood aunt Naomi, <laughs> and she's back. You know, that lady that everyone calls aunt. <laughs> I really wouldn't be surprised if Naomi was that pleasant lady that genuinely cared, checked up on you when nobody else does, uh, remember what you're going through, and talks to you about it, and it's been years, and Bethlehem is glad to receive their most pleasant neighbor back. No judgment on her for what she did with the Elimelech, but that's not how Naomi feels about her return. Another evidence for me that the Bible is a story about real people in real times is that in this book, Naomi is what literary people would call a round character. You have flat characters who you can predict, and they play their part in the story, and they really seem to never change, but then you have a round character, and that's like real people. Naomi has ups and downs. She might have a usual demeanor and a personality for the most part, but just like any real people, because Naomi is real, things can occur that produce unusual or different responses. This culture was a culture that was unafraid to publicly express grief. You see, people pass, putting on sackcloth and ashes, you have... King David praying for his son with Bathsheba, refusing to eat, upsetting the palace people that are concerned for his health. Whenever you felt bad and were experiencing a trial and somebody asked you, hey, how are you? Unlike Americans, you were honest and said, I'm horrible. Pull up a chair, I'll tell you about it. Beyond Naomi's expression of grief, though, I want you to see, and I think this is where the block was happening for me, Naomi was doing something that I do, and Naomi... Unlike Ruth, who has thrown off all that it means to be a Moabite, 
Naomi is allowing her sins and her tragedies and her failings to literally define her. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. Why? Because she's bitter and she's accepting the darkness in her life to define her. And she's painting everything in her world dark. She might as well be saying, I've changed my name to the childless widow from Moab. Call me that. A lot of you know how this is because either you've been there, you are there, or you have a family member or friend there. Don't talk to them about God. God's been mean to them. God's taken their loved ones. God's taken their jobs. God's ruined their relationships. God is a bitter topic to them. God could have saved them from calamity, but because he didn't, they're not on speaking terms right now, or they are on speaking terms, and it's full of resentment, rage, anger, and disappointment. This is how Naomi feels. God is judging her. God's hand is against her. And if you're there, or if your friends are there, I want you to see how completely wrong she is. I want you to see how incorrect and unfair she is in her judgment of how God feels about her. Listen, friends, let me tell you right now, no matter the sins you commit, no matter the trials you face, no matter the vicious cycle of the umpteenth one sin, one problem you're in, no matter the tragedies you've experienced, no matter the scrutiny that you feel, no matter the guilt and the shame, God does not punish his sons and daughters. God is not in the habit of abusing his sons and daughters. God's heart is to save. God's heart is to redeem. God's heart is to love. God's heart is to protect. God's heart is against the evil that does evil to you, not for it. God doesn't look down and see Israelite number one. He's got it all together. He's a good boy. I'll take it easy on him. But Naomi, following that pansy, no good Elimelech, curses beyond her. God is not like that. Because God looks down at the world and sees, what a bunch of Elimelechs. I love them. Paul tells us in Romans 3, where there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. Naomi is no exception. She has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but she is justified, declared righteous, made righteous, forgiven by God's grace through the redemption of Christ Jesus. Yes, Naomi, Old Testament pre-incarnation Naomi. That's what Hebrews 11 is about. That's what Paul means here, that by Jesus' blood, in his divine forbearance, that in his restraint, in his holding back of punishment, he overlooked former sins, the sins of Naomi. Why did he restrain himself? Because he promised that he would at the flood, and he released his entire wrath for the sins of everybody on Jesus Christ. Do you know what that means? It would be unjust, it would be ungodly, and completely invalid for God to say, As for Naomi, her sins are just too dastardly that my wrath will consume my son, but also will be satiated by punishing Naomi as well. God is not like that. His wrath is satiated in being poured out on the one who can take it, the one who volunteered to take it, the one who took it and rose again. 
So it doesn't have to be taken out on you. God is not angry at you if you are in Christ Jesus. God's wrath does not burn against you if you are in Christ Jesus. It is finished. God's wrath is satisfied. The debt we owe is paid. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the rest of this story is going to prove to you that Naomi is completely wrong here. God's hand is not against her. It's being held to go against Jesus. Verse 22, Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Two quick things I want to note about this one verse that the author may be doing to showing that Naomi is wrong and that God is about to redeem. Interestingly, the author starts adding this description of Ruth. He didn't do this before. Ruth, namely Ruth the Moabite. He could be reminding audiences of Ruth's origin because we knew Moab came from a mother who had no husband and no children to begin with. And we know that Moab's mom sought to remedy that situation. I would argue she did so sinfully. But we also take hope for Ruth and Naomi who are also widows and childless. Isn't it interesting that Mary had no husband and no children when she was promised to deliver the Savior? Secondly, the author notes it's the beginning of barley harvest that coincides around Passover season when Israel was delivered from Egypt, when our, also when our Savior died for our sins and delivered us from our captor, captors. Biblically speaking, the Passover season was well known by the time of Ruth to be a time to celebrate redemption and delivery. So there's some hope there. We move on. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Some of you wrestling, like Naomi does, wrestling and and watching what's happened to you or happened to your friends, and and you believe in God, primarily in, in God's judgment so much so you wonder, how can you be assured to know that you aren't being abused by the one whom Jesus tells us to lovingly and intimately call Father? How do we know that we don't serve a child abuser? And I made the point... In the study guides, I hope you're reading, but it's such a heartwarming point to me that I want to express it here. And that is, I think, unbeknownst to Naomi and Ruth, they are being provided for in a very personable and real way by God. Because God's word, hundreds of years prior, said this. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and, the so, and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem. Naomi's expressed her honest feelings. God's doing Sodom and Gomorrah on me. I'm doomed. Um, his hand is against me. Ruth is now a, a new citizen of Israel trying to learn the ropes. She found this law in Israel for poor widows in her position to glean among the fields, so she just found a field and chose it. 
she happened upon Boaz's field, so the language says in this passage. Kind of paints this picture of just two gals trying to get together. They're trying to find out how to provide for themselves. Now view it from God's perspective, using the language from the Bible. Before ages began, God knew and saved Naomi and Ruth through Jesus Christ, a direct descendant in human terms from Ruth. Hundreds of years before Naomi and Ruth walked the earth, God put into his law at least three big provisions having to do with feeding the poor, caring for the sojourner, redeeming family from widowhood. God beckoned Naomi and Ruth back to the covenant community of Israel through the grace he had in visiting the land. And in his providence placed Ruth on the field of the kinsman redeemer that will bring blessings and grace on Naomi and her family. Is this the work of an eternal God whose hand is against Naomi? Is this the fierce judgment and anger burning against Naomi for her sins? And I can't get over the fact that it is God's word so literally providing for Ruth and Naomi here. It gives power to his word, does it not? Some of you get tired of hearing pastors say to you in a counseling sort of way, I'm sorry you're struggling this way. I'm sorry this happened to you. I'm sorry you can't get over your sin. Have you been reading God's word? Have you been praying? What's he been saying to you? And I am very much like you that I would love to hear, do these steps, pray these prayers, listen to these sermons, read 23 verses here, and ta-da, you'll get over this hurdle and back up the mountain. But God says, my word is enough. My grace is sufficient. My word is living and active and powerful. And we see this here in this story. What words of God are currently preserving and sustaining you and you don't even know it? What grace are you taking part of, part in for granted when it's really to God be the glory? When it's really God's intimate grace that is propelling you forward? I read a satire news article and I think it demonstrates well what I'm trying to say. It said The headline said, Atheist uses breath given to him by God to refute his existence. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, atheist says, uh, atheist uses breath that God gives him to refute his evidence. Yeah, existence. God's grace is so literally evident by his word providing for Ruth and Naomi. The Naomi who just said, God is against me, is being provided for by that said God. Ruth comes into the field of Boaz. Now I'm totally not original or novel in this opinion of mine because you've got to be blind or heartless to not just love this character in this book. If his name didn't sound so goofy, I would probably name a kid after him. <laughs> because Boaz is really a man out of the time of the judges. The Old Testament, if you're in it and familiar with reading it, it's very unapologetic, is it not? <laughs> I think my exposition of Naomi just proved my point. The Bible does not sugar sugarcoat anyone. You have patriarchs like Abraham and Isaac lying about their wives, Abraham taking a mistress and trying to speed up God's plan. You have Jacob stealing birthrights and playing favorites. I'll just stop there, but the Old Testament is far and few with people like Boaz. People that we know did sin, but it seems rather ambiguous when or where, and maybe even unrecorded that they did, because Boaz sticks out like a righteous, pure thumb in the book of Ruth. You've got Elimelech leaving God's 
uh, covenant community of Israel. You got Ruth, the Moabite convert in training, and you got Naomi and her God hates me theology. And then here comes Boaz on the scene. Verse 4 says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back from Naomi, from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Boaz is coming out into the fields from Bethlehem. If I could use some contemporary illustrations here, he's the CEO of his business. <laughs> so this is like Boss Boaz drove down from Spokane to his warehouse in Pullman. And for those of you who have been in church circles for a long time, you should know the greeting between Jewish people, and this isn't it. The greeting is usually shalom, right? Peace be to you. <laughs> Another example of Boaz's countercultural righteousness in the time of the judges is he's doing really Christian believer brother talk. He's saying, the Lord be with you, and the employees respond back, the Lord bless you. This is a boss who is personable, friendly, and God blessing with his employees. These are employees who love to work for such a good boss. They know that their fields and their produce and the abundance are all governed by the Lord. That God's the one who turns over a good year. On the fields today, though, is probably not an altogether unusual sight. There is a woman gleaning. Bethlehem is surely not, certainly not as big as Spokane back in that day. Everybody kind of knows each other. And so when pleasant Naomi returned and made her scene, everyone caught a glimpse of the foreigner. And Boaz may have heard about it, but maybe have not seen it. And so he's kind of given a rap sheet. <laughs> this is the young Moabite. Strike one for righteous Boaz, right? If Boaz has, has any knowledge of the law, and then more than Naomi might, Boaz might know about the whole Moabites don't fellowship with Israelites thing. Who came back with Naomi, strike two. Oh, she came with a family that left God's people <laughs> from Moab. Let's just reinforce our distaste for Moab with strike three, right? Now, when I put it to you that way, how many of you, as you hear about Boaz, you've deceived yourselves and said, well, I'm obviously going to be Boaz in this story, right? In a time of judges where everyone's selfishly sinning and ignoring God, I'd be that guy. I'd keep the rules, I'd be a righteous one out of the many unrighteous. And if that is so, how do you respond here? What do you say to the Moabite woman who's attached herself to the currently unpleasant Naomi, having just returned from the darkness of Moab? And I think this is where my personal block came out on an all-out high, because I need to be honest with you, I don't know if I would have responded like Boaz does. And this is very important, Christian brother and Christian sister, because for Ruth, this is a moment for her. She's trying to provide for her mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law may be too old to work. Perhaps Ruth came back with her to support her somehow. It seems Elimelech, the provider, died. Ruth's husband, the provider, died. Ruth's brother-in-law, the provider, died. Ruth is trying as much as she's able to provide. She's found a field 
She's been able to glean some. The boss is here. He's got, over, he's got control over his fields. He's in charge. The truth is out. She's a Moabite from just another quasi-religious family. And now a genuine believer is about to speak. So what is he going to say? Is he going to judge or love? You and I, the Bible calls us ambassadors for God. So for Ruth, the newly converted Israelite, she's about to hear from an ambassador of God. She's about to hear what she will then perceive to be God's word to her. Do you know that, Christian? Do you feel that weight? When people talk to you, especially when they talk to you about seeking godly counsel, do you know that you are to be speaking on behalf of God? And even if you do speak with from the Bible, do you know that even the tone you use, the body language you have, the overall emotion you produce could be in that moment for that person that you're speaking to? For them, it is maybe a time of feeling like, is this how God interacts with me? Is this what God thinks of me? Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drunk. Is this the voice of God that Naomi thinks she hears? Is this bitter judgment? Is this punishment? Boaz speaks into this dark situation and he speaks provision. He speaks protection. Out of the gate... What Boaz says warms my heart beyond anything, because what does Boaz say to the foreign Moabite who has attached herself to the currently embittered Naomi, the foreigner in God's land and God's kingdom? Boaz says, now listen, my daughter. Do you think Ruth needed to hear that? He doesn't say, listen here, Moabite. Listen here, woman. Listen here, little girl. Or listen here, former Miss Killian, or whoever your dead husband's name was. My daughter is going to explain his reasons for that lovely name here in the next few verses. But now he tacks on more love and more grace. Take all you need from my field. Don't go anywhere. Why? Because I, I can ensure your safety here. No men is going to abuse you. And you know, Israelite men who do what's right in their own eyes, whenever they see a foreign lady, you know what's going to happen. At least you're not Israelite. And if you're ever thirsty, Ruth, drink from the water that I placed out for my men who are working the fields. Christian, what is your voice when people come to you? Is it grace? Is it love? Or do you take God's job and proclaim judgment? Are you a nitpicker and a speck spotter? You know, if you're really seeking the Lord and claiming to be a child of His, lucky for you, I stayed up last night reading my Bible so I can give you a list of all the sins you need to repent of. Don't mind if I share them. I'm not saying that we should never call each other out for sin, and in fact, if this is convicting you, case made. But rather take into consideration Boaz and his words here. Boaz, like I illustrated, could have resorted to the strikes and stains he could hold against Ruth, but rather he affirmed the choice that she had made to come to God's kingdom. He spoke grace 
to her. He built her up. He encouraged her. He consoled her. What Paul writes to the Thessalonians seems so relevant to this year. He writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Unlike what Naomi thinks, a destiny in wrath, God has in store for Naomi and Ruth salvation. And Boaz is accepting Ruth, possible blemishes and all, encourages her and builds her up. Well, Ruth wants to know why. Like Naomi, maybe she doesn't understand grace. She asks, Actually, it says, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not before, that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. There was a man in the New Testament that came up to Jesus one time, and he asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what I think that many miss as they study that story is that Jesus answers the question right away. With a resounding, no one can inherit eternal life. Because what does Jesus respond? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What does that mean? That means whoever inherits eternal life better rely on the good God, not on their own goodness. That's the first thing Jesus points out. The second thing that Jesus points out, contrary to what this man thought, namely that this man was loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, there was something, there was one thing he was withholding from God. This man loved his money, and this man cannot serve two masters. What is Boaz saying to Ruth? Boaz is saying, it is evident in your life that nothing is holding you back from following God. Because after that conversation between Jesus and the rich young man, Jesus explains to his disciples... Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Ruth has left father and mother and native lands and came to a people that she did not know before. She left it all for God and his kingdom. And in God's kingdom, there are hundredfold mothers and brothers and sisters. In God's kingdom, there's hundredfold provision. In God's kingdom, there is life and life abundantly. So when Ruth and Naomi returned from the pagan wilderness of Moab to the kingdom of God at Bethlehem, literally the house of bread, when they left the corpses of their dead providers, hoping to be provided for in God's kingdom, when they left the fields of Moab for the fields of God, they can expect hundredfold. They can expect grace and provision. They can expect what's happening here. Friends, that's the God you serve. That's what you 
can expect. Are you in sin will come to God's kingdom to find forgiveness and redemption? Are you the victim of tragedy and despair? Come to God's kingdom and find redemption and peace. Are you spiritually hungry and thirsty? Come to the bread of life and the living water. Naomi and Ruth came to Bethlehem during a time of abundance, and Naomi was bitter. Jesus showed up at Bethlehem under the bitter rule of Herod and brought abundance. Naomi claimed that her life in Moab was full, and now she is empty. Jesus emptied himself to die for the Moabites and all the sinners that we might be full. Naomi rightfully ascertained that God had testified against her and that she deserved judgment. Jesus took the punishment for Naomi's sin and expiated God's judgment. Ruth went into the fields sent there by the word of God. Jesus is the seed scattered among the fields, the word of God. Boaz assures Ruth that she need not find food or water anywhere but his field. Jesus assures us that he is the bread of life and the living water. Boaz gives grace and favor to Ruth, a lowly, undeserving Moabite by her own admission. Jesus gives grace and favor to us, lowly, undeserving sinners by our own admission. Let's pray. Father, I, uh, I ask for your forgiveness. I know it's probably only me that struggles with understanding grace. Because, Father, it's so alien and unworldly. That's because it comes from a pure source, God Almighty. So, Father, we thank you for the grace that you extend to us, just as grace, in a very material sense, you extended to Ruth and Naomi. Father, we thank you for the gospel that's in every book of the Bible. And we thank you for how you're teaching us today with this gospel. Father, if you have convicted us, if many of us want to be defined by our problems and not defined as who we are before you, a son or a daughter, if we have accepted your son Jesus, would you help us to remove our identity off of our problems and to see ourselves as your adopted son or daughter? Father, if you have convicted us with the way that we handle strangers seeking a word from the Lord or even forgetting that we are your ambassadors in an idle conversation or in gossip. Father, would you give us the grace and the obedience to you that we might think about what we're saying and that we might be speakers of your grace, of your peace, of your truth, even in our correction and rebuking. Father, we understand the difference between boldness, passion, versus angry and wanting to be bright. Would you help us to be more like your son Jesus? Not to be unapologetic about the truth, but also to season our words with grace. Father, would you use these truths in our hearts and our minds? Would you transform us and help us to be these people as we go out into our community this next week? Father, as we handle conversation with friends, neighbors, family, co-workers, whoever you might bring along our path. And Father, would we realize that we never happen to come along anyone, but in your providence you have placed them there in that moment. Help us to be obedient to what you want us to say and do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.